Hello, folks, and thank you for joining me to uh, part two of our episode on economic inequality. You're listening to Meet Me in the Middle, an XN radio podcast where we seek to foster positive political dialogue. Today, I have my friend uh, Chris Butler on today. He works for the Moody Church. Do you mind introducing yourself to our audience briefly? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, my name is Christopher Butler, and I do work indeed at the Moody Church, uh, specifically in the media department, and I'm also on the tech crew, which I uh, help with the uh, audio for the uh, morning services. This is in continuation to our uh, previous episode on economic inequality with Ronald Clay, where we talked a lot about uh opportunities and seeking them within the uh, black community and also urban areas. So I have Chris on to talk about his experiences. Ronald was from the South side and Chris is from the West side. We're going to focus in on this uh, Chicago experience that we have going on here. So today we'll be talking about inequality. It's a word that we cannot seem to escape. Wherever we go, there is inequality, whether it be economic or racial or both. Uh, they appear to go hand in hand, but when we turn on the news or read a scholarly article, you see mentions of severe and systemic inequality in cities. A lack of opportunity, political corruption, and rampant crime are the pictures painted by multimedia conglomerates. Uh, Chicago, specifically, is a picture painted of land with little opportunities for those of low income. The generational wealth is concentrated in more homogenous areas of the city, with solutions being offered such as a state income tax credit, child tax credit, subsidized housing, child care, and health care. Whether the efficacy of these solutions is sound or not is not the focus of this discussion. Rather, I want to focus on the on-the-ground perspective from you, uh, Chris, as you live in the West Side and have been living there for a while and also do some forms of ministry in your community as well. So a few questions that are pretty broad that I want to focus in on is what is the uh, what is the neighborhood you you live in and what's the situation there from your perspective? Uh, currently, I live in the Garfield Park neighborhood, and it is a, <clears throat> for lack of a better term, a slowly gentrifying neighborhood. From my vantage point, it is both helpful and frustrating because the neighborhood is beginning to get some of the resources that it has needed for a long time. The problem is, is that those resources only show up once white people start moving in. So, and then it's also just the thing of not all the white people that move in are doing this, but some of them are basically acting as if the black people who have lived there for decades are problematic. So, for example, um, my wife was coming home, saw a couple pushing their baby in a stroller, white couple, uh, down the street. As they come up to an intersection, about a block away, there's a black man who's lived in the neighborhood for years, minding his own business, walking up the street towards them. And as soon as they see him, they stop, pause, like, oh no, there's a black guy. And it's just like, he's walking down the street in a neighborhood that he has lived in for probably 10, 20 years, you just show up knowing full well there are black people in this neighborhood and then act scared and surprised when you actually see one. Another situation even sooner, more recent than that, um, me, 
and my wife we were getting our kids into our van. Uh, a couple, Katie Corner across the street from us, was kind of like trying to look over their shoulder and like rushing into the house as we came out to put our kids into the vehicle. And it's like, why are you doing that? Um, you chose to move into this neighborhood, and our particular block has people who have been there for some families for like 60 years, 60 plus. Like the building I live in, my landlord grew up in that building. It was owned by his uncle before him. His, his mother lives in the basement of my building, and his grandmother lives a few houses down the street. So it's like he's been running up and down the street, you know, since he was knee-high to a grasshopper. And yet, you know, he's still looked at weird when he comes home to visit his mother and so forth. And it's just like, why are you viewing the people who have lived here as if they are a problem when you are the one that chose to move over here in the first place. Like, these are the people that aren't causing issues, that aren't doing anything crazy. They're just living their life in the home that they own. So what are you afraid of? You know, So it's, it's a little bit of that. Yeah. So there's... So, from, so, so I can reiterate to, to understand it fully. Uh, you said you live in East Garfield Park? No, just Garfield Park. Just Garfield Park. Just Garfield Park. Just Garfield Park. All right. And that area is starting to become more gentrified, and in that there is a sort of fear of the unknown for the people that move in, uh, that they've never lived in an area with a lot of uh, African Americans there. Uh, where do you think that, that comes from, besides uh, the, the simple answer of it being probably some internalized racism? See, the, the issue is that when once you start talking about um, where stuff comes from, particularly when it comes to race in America, there is no simple answer. Um, and a lot of the stuff that you see today has taken, you know, decades to manifest. So on the one hand, you can say that, is there some concern for the neighborhood it's not violence free we we do hear gunshots on occasion um and so forth but at the same time rarely does anyone ask why that is the case and if you're going to talk about you know sort of like um low level of racism that these people come into the neighborhood with well then you have to ask yourself why do they have that where did that come from? What were the things that caused that to be created? And why do they then bring that into the neighborhood when they move in? So, no, I can't really give you a simple answer as to why they that is the case. Because it's not every white person that does that. Um, but unfortunately, it's a decent amount. So a lot of the times when people are in neighborhoods that do deal with a lot of crime, but it's more, more overtly, I mean, our, our media says it's primarily the South and West side. Um, and that's the perception people are coming in with. So when they see somebody uh, walking down the street, there's always that fear in these, in these folks that there could be some danger to them. I've also have pe- fr- friends who are, who are cops or who've lived in areas like this who say that, 
a lot of that, that violence isn't really going to affect these folks. If, if let's say, a, a, a white family's walking down the street or something, they're probably not going to get become a victim of crime because... Well, I don't know how to phrase this, though. This is so difficult because you're dealing with such... T- is not there is no good way to there phrase is it. no good way to phrase this but yeah because <laughs> it's not a simple do these people have a rational fear that they they could be victims of crime that's kind of what I what I just want to say is there is there a rational uh, is their fear rational to a degree yes and to a degree no so okay so let's say there's a lady out jogging white lady out jogging in my neighborhood. And she sees a black guy in a hoodie walking towards her. Well, first thing you should ask yourself, is it cold enough for a hoodie? If it is, is it really a problem? But then you also have to ask yourself, how many times will a white lady be attacked by a black man in that neighborhood and nothing happen? But then the black guy also has to wonder, Am I going to run into a white woman that's going to decide I'm a threat, have a Karen moment, call the cops, and then now I'm up a creek because I happen to be walking down the street when she happened to be running? So, and yes, there are some degrees where it's like, okay, there's a lot of crime in this particular area. Yeah. You should have some concern if it is a high crime area, like regardless of skin color. That should be on your mind. But at the same time, if no one asks why these particular areas have higher crime, then it will nothing will ever change. Because a lot of people just say, oh, high crime rate, you need more cops. Is that really the case? Or are you just trying to are you just trying to deal with the symptom and not the actual problem? People want simple answers to complex situations. And I think that's actually one of the big problems we're dealing with today. People like things to be black or white, yes or no, good or bad. And it's like, it has not been that simple for a very long time. And to think that it's magically going to become that is, in many ways, short-sighted and foolish. So even in conversations I've had with people, it's just like, No, you need to ask yourself why before you actually begin to get to any solid answers. And most likely, you're not going to like what you find. You know, the history of this country is there are some good things and there are also some some bad things. Is it as bad as every some other countries? No. Is it as good as some other countries? No. But you know, this is the one that we live in and therefore because of that this is the one we will pay the most most attention to because this is the one that directly affects us exactly yeah another question that we censored on uh, is how much economic mobility exists in your part of the city Uh, at least from the previous episode perspective was the south side a lot more uh, mobility, that there were still jobs, even though a lot of those uh, manufacturing jobs that were center for those communities in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that helped fuel a strong middle class in that area vanished, uh, there still existed an opportunity, opportunity of just the lack of seeking out 
those opportunities. So what does it look like on the West side or just from your perspective in general? So when it comes to working, my personal experience may not be the best thing to look at because um, I've had steady work since I was like 16 or so. But when you're looking at, um, for lack of a better term, the ability to move from one, um, like say lower class to middle class, again, it is a thing that is not as easy to pick apart because although your uh, previous guest does have some good points, which is there is a level at which the individual does need to make the decision to do certain things. Like you're, you're not going to get away from the fact that the personal um, decisions you make will affect you. But at the same time, there are certain things that have happened within the history of this country that do affect certain people more than others. So, for example, uh, the GI Bill that was given to veterans after World War II. Um, black people were essentially cut out from that. I think I, looking into it, I found that about, saw a study that said about roughly 98% of all the veterans who received that um, were white. And so I read a book um, I'm forgetting the author's name, but it was the book was titled The Color of Law. And the author was a Jewish guy who was basically arguing that um, we have a lot of segregation, particularly in the big cities in America. And his argument was that this is not a de facto segregation, as in people just naturally did this. Um, he was like, that is not the case. This was put in place... Um, by the actions of the government from the federal on down to the local level. And one of the things he points out was that GI Bill, um, he said in today's money, like the average house in certain areas costs like $350,000. He was like, what the GI Bill did in the equivalent of today's dollars would be allow a family to purchase that $350,000 home for $75,000 with no down payment. Right. Wow. So, right. And that was back in the 50s. So that allowed a lot of people to purchase their home. And then as that home appreciates in value and so forth, they're able to borrow against their home to do certain things. But also one of the um, ways, the quickest ways in America to generate wealth is through owning property or land. And so by doing that and cutting essentially, <clears throat> for the most part, black people out of that, they simply they essentially cut off an avenue of uh, wealth generation that could be made. And so you look at a place like Chicago where they pretty much, and through redlining, basically said we will not invest in certain neighborhoods in order to 
keep things segregated. So black people live in Chicago, mainly on south and west sides. And there were many, over decades, those er neighborhoods in those areas basically were not given certain um, mm -hmm. resources. And those neighborhoods have been asking for those resources for decades. And that is one of the big reasons why you see so many issues, more issues, I should say, in those neighborhoods and in those areas in Chicago than you do in others. Because those neighborhoods have not been given the resources that other white neighborhoods have been getting. So at this, on the one hand, the previous guest, he looks at it and says, well, yeah, there's still opportunity to be, opportunities to be had. Yeah, but just because there are opportunities to be had does not mean you are prepared to take advantage of said opportunities. I mean, because if he, um, if someone gets put in prison and then they get out, are you prepared to do an internship at like a radio station? No. You have to do a bunch of other training and so forth to get yourself into a position to be prepared to take advantage of that opportunity. Um, but even if you remove anything like that, having something as simple as the financial means to say, go to a four-year college. You know, a lot of people don't. And as you, you know, what we're dealing with now is so many people who just don't have the money to get to a four-year college because they're just ridiculously expensive now. So, but if, you know, certain things like having a home that you can borrow against could allow you to take out a loan to send your child to college and thus putting that child in a better place so that when their children grow up, they have more than what their parents had to give to their children. And so that helps from generation to generation. Does that one housing thing um, create the situation we're in now? No, there's a bunch of other, other stuff as well. But all that to say this, <clears throat> it is hard to judge a person's choices when you don't know what options they had to choose from to begin with. And then assuming that, well, because I did X, Y, and Z, you should be able to do X, Y, and Z. And it should be able to turn out the way it turned out for me. That just don't work. Nothing's going to have a simple answer. kind of want to dive into that part you mentioned that you don't really know what other people are starting off with. Uh, so there's always that common interpretation that one size will fit, fit all for each solution. Uh, what are some realities the common Chicagoan doesn't know about living on the west side in that community? So this is kind of bridging the gap culturally almost, I suppose, if you want to say that, from Moody as the school to the community outside of it, just in general, because this school is kind of like a bubble. It is it's one of those things that you may not notice much of until you actually go out there and visit it. Even just growing up uh, on the west side, and this is something that I began to figure out soon more recently but there are some decent schools but a lot of the schools are still struggling to really make ends meet they're struggling to keep the resources they need uh, to keep the teachers that they need um, to keep the programs 
that they need. Um, so you, you have that issue. You have um, the other week. I was trying. I have uh, trying to find a uh, my local bank. I'm with the Citibank at the moment. I was trying to find a close branch. Nothing within miles. <laughs> I literally have to travel outside of my neighborhood in order to get to uh, the bank that I work with. Um, there are many what they call food deserts mm-hmm. um, where there is no good grocery store within blocks or miles. Um, now that's not to say that you know these are bad places, but currently those things, some a lot of those things aren't there because of decisions that were made in the past that have not been rectified. And also, even without that, there is just a different... Um, when you go into a neighborhood of a different people group, there's going to be a different culture that you experience. Um, and I think one of the big things is that if you're going to go into a n- different neighborhood with a different that basically has a different people group, understand that you will run into something different from what you're used to, but just because something is different does not mean it is bad and then need, therefore needs to be changed. All it means is that it's different. And understanding that difference and being okay with that difference, I think is probably the biggest thing that I'd recommend to people when you're trying to go somewhere. And it kind of doesn't matter where. Just because you're not used to it doesn't mean it needs to change to what you want. You know? So, you know, even for somebody going out to the south or west sides, things are going to be different. That's fine. Be okay with that. As a matter of fact, expect it. You know? So... So particularly for any moody student that would be looking to serve like on the west side, one, be mindful of that. Two, and also a thing I've, I've had to explain to so many people, if you are in a neighborhood, I'll put it this way. If a white person goes into a black neighborhood and black people are staring at them, it's not because they intend you violence or harm. It's more likely because they're wondering why you're there because most white people don't want to go into their neighborhood you know um and so how to put it if you look scared then you are more likely going to encourage someone to do it because now you're making them angry because your immediate their immediate response is so you come into our neighborhood and look at us like we're going to do something to you because you chose to venture over here what would be the point of me taking time out of my day just because you showed up for me to go over there, rob you, whatever. So if you go into a situation looking scared, you're immediately telling people like, I think you're a problem and that you're going to do something to me. Does act like you walking down the street in any other place that will, that will deal with half of, and also you could just say hi to people. 
They'll say hi back. We can, we can do that? Yes. You can say hi to people. It's one of the easiest ways to cut tension. You know, go out down the street? How you doing? <laughs> if a bunch of people on the porch looking at you out down the street, just look at them. How y'all doing? Then keep going. Somebody will say hi back. Hi. <laughs> They'll probably watch you go down the street because it's still weird that you're in that neighborhood and most pe- people don't go there. But that will help because it shows it shows that you're not assuming that they are a threat to you and that they're just people living in their neighborhood, chilling on their front porch, doing what they normally do any other day of the week. Just because you happen to be there doesn't mean their life now changes and now focuses solely upon you. So, yeah. yeah. Don't act afraid. You covered a little bit why it isn't there because the generational wealth just wasn't created equally. Uh, redlining and investment in cities wasn't necessarily encouraged in certain parts. If you're talking about economic inequality, and especially from a Christian standpoint, um, there were many places in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, where one the Bible basically calls out um, people with wealth who are mistreating um, people without wealth. And that is something that Christians should take rather seriously. And we're looking at the whole issue of going back to college, school debt. That's a, that's a big thing that we have an issue with in this country. Um, and a lot of Christians had big issue with Biden forgiving some of that school debt. My first question would be why? Why would you have that issue? And so I heard a lot of people say, you know, if you you are supposed to pay your debts, okay, if you're supposed to pay your debts, in 2008, banks decided to play around and basically caused a financial crash across the globe. They were forgiven. They were bailed out. They said they were too big to fail car companies and all sorts of some of everything else were bailed out. They were too big to fail. Even during COVID, a lot of senators and stuff like that who were making sure they could cover payroll for their employees and all that stuff, they were bailed out and forgiven that stuff. But when it gets down to the local person who is paying exorbitant fees just so they can get the education that everybody says they need to have, all of a sudden, no, you can't be bailed out. You can't get any debt forgiveness. You can't get any help. You need to pay your full debt. Where was that comment when the banks were getting saved, when the airlines were getting saved, when car companies were getting saved? Where, where was all that? Where, where were those senators, you know, where, where are they pulling up all that extra money that, that, that was forgiven for them? So if you want to talk about debt forgiveness, or if you want to talk about righting the wrongs or anything like that, you should have had you should have started the conversation long before Biden decided to do some student forgiveness. You know, because there is also, to my knowledge, no place in the Bible where God does not say that you should not pay recompense when you have wronged someone, that you should not pay back what you owe. Even Christ himself um, 
The wages of sin is death. God was owed that. He knew we couldn't pay it, so he paid it for us. But the debt had to be paid. And so if you're talking about repaying debt, if you're talking about righting wrongs, there's a lot of stuff, racially speaking, that this country and the church within it need to repay before they start crying about, you know, student loan debts. There's a lot of stuff. So that's one thing we can talk about um, because there were many institutions that were part of making sure segregation continued to happen in Chicago in the past. Uh, even Moody Church, where I work, would not allow black people to become members until the 60s. So even within you know, these religious institutions, there was still blatant racism. Uh, so if we are going to talk about the, if we are going to look at these things from a legit biblical standpoint, you can't just look at now and say, well, this, this, and this going forward, we should only address it from a biblical standpoint. That is not the case. No, you need to look at why it got this way and also look to redress, if you want to stay biblical, what wrongs certain institutions have participated in and how they can look to make recompense for those things. It was actually in that book that I read, The Color of Law. I'm a, I'm a, I'll go look it up and I'll, I'll give you the reference because he actually points out, because his whole thing in that was that the government itself is responsible was should be held responsible for a lot of the stuff it did and one of the points he was making was that the government continued to give tax exempt status to many religious institutions a lot of them christian despite the fact that they were encouraging and supporting things that were that went directly against the 14th and 15th and 13th amendments and all that stuff that encouraged segregation. And, um, and so his point was, if these institutions were doing that, then the federal government should have re rejected their tax exempt status. We're not going to cut you any slack because you are going against the very laws that we have instituted and mistreating our citizens in a way that we have said legally they cannot be treated. Pastor Larry McCarthy, who is uh, one of the pastors at Moody Church, it was his parents who became the first black people to be members at the Moody Church. Wow. Yeah. And he said even then there was still a lot of comments about like, you know, isn't there a church in your neighborhood? Are you sure you need to come here? I'm like, I'm sure there's somewhere better you could go and so forth like that. You know, very underhanded uh, comments. So, um but, you know, any institution, including Moody, um, tends to look at those situations with more rose-colored glasses than... It's not that they're ignoring it, but you're not getting the full details. And it's not surprising. Um, you, Anybody who had something like that in their past would like to put a more positive look on such a 
negative thing. So, yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> yeah, it's just tricky looking into that stuff because once you start looking, and that, and I think that's one of the reasons why so few churches want to actually deep dive into the racial history of the church because you got to confront a lot of stuff that's just not pretty. It's not an easy conversation. It's not something simple to deal with. It takes a lot of work. It's not a matter of if it's not a matter of if you will be hurt in the conversation. It's just a matter of when and how bad. Because it's just it's just not a simple conversation to get into. For those who live in America, I would simply say that it is not as simple as it seems. There is a lot more detail, there's a lot more backstory that goes into it. And it is also not something that will simply fix itself. going to take time it's going to take work and taking the time to actually listen to someone else's experience is very valuable even to the point where I remember when uh, what was it Colin Kaepernick started uh, kneeling in the NFL. And I remember talking to a coworker, and this coworker mentioned, they were like, you never disrespect the flag. They were like, I was fine with Colin Kaepernick until he started disrespecting the flag. And I'm like, that flag looks very different if your skin is not white. Because I'm like, that's the same flag that flew at the beginning of this country when they said, we believe that all men are created equal unto God, and then looked at black people and said, we're going to enslave you. That's the same one that flew over this country during the Civil War, when one half of the country decided, if we can't keep slaves, then we out. That's the same flag that flew over the Civil Rights, when everyone says they loved Martin Luther King, and killed his butt anyway. Um, that's the same flag that flew over the first Black Lives Matter movement back in 2008. And that's the same flag that still flew over the most recent one we had back in 2016. So I'm like, which flag are you talking about? Because as far as I'm concerned, that's the flag that was supposed to guarantee me my freedoms under God, but hasn't. So just because someone comes at a different point of view doesn't mean they're wrong. And just because someone doesn't have the same experience as you doesn't mean that your experience was not valid. Different things can do, do and mean different things to different people. You know, a lot of black people view Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln as almost like a savior. But he was horrible to Native Americans. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, you know, a person can be something good to one person, one set of people, and something bad to another. A situation can be good to one set of people and be bad to another. And so for Moody students, I would simply say this is not a simple conversation. This is a very hard one, a very long one. And it's not one that you can just pick up in conversation 
the white people that I know that are serious about dealing with racism are well-educated individuals who have been looking into this for years and who do not take things lightly. It's not, it wasn't just conversations. It wasn't just, um, you know, talking to one or two black people. It was, no, they were asking serious questions. They were addressing serious issues. They were um, asking hard questions and willing to receive hard answers. Um, And so you are not going to be able to get around that conversation when you are discussing um, economic inequality and so forth. Like, that is one of the primary reasons we have that because of the complexities of racism in our past, which has greatly shaped many things that we are dealing with now. So, yeah, if you really want to know what's up, you really want to understand, it takes a lot of work. It takes, it's going to be a lot of pain. It's going to be a lot of hurt. But if you are actually trying to address it from a biblical standpoint, there's no way around. So we have to embrace complexity and not settle for simple answers. You have to understand that you are not going to get simple cookie cutter answers. It's just there's, there's too much history. There's too much. There's too many people involved. There are too many ideals involved. So, yeah, there are no simple answers. And with that, we're going to go ahead and leave you, our dear audience, to ponder on these questions and find your own solutions. In this podcast, we go beyond simple rhetoric. We go beyond partisan solutions offered. And we embrace the power of the individual to come to their own conclusions. So now you've heard two perspectives on a myriad of issues. And with that, we pray that this journey of yours is fruitful and that the conclusions you arrive on are the best, uh, well-reasoned, and most uh, God-honoring decisions and conclusions you find. So thank you for listening to another episode of Meet Me in the Middle, and please listen to our other episode available for you today. Today is the midterm election, and the other episode I got uploaded for you today is a real treat, where we'll be talking about political polarization. We're entering the final stretch of Meet Me in the Middle, and it has been an absolute pleasure to be your host. So today, we're going to continue our conversation on political polarization, and tomorrow, We'll end this podcast off in a good note by looking forward to the future, talking about electoral reform. I'm so excited to share these thoughts with you. You don't want to miss it. Go ahead and uh, wherever you're streaming me from, go to the library of uh, this podcast and you'll see another episode right there called Political Polarization Part 2. Go ahead and click on that and tune into that exciting conversation about the state of polarization in this country. Well, thank you so much wherever you're listening, whenever you're listening, and I hope you have a great day wherever you are. Bye.